the UK's version of the Brexit story was always in some respects a domestic political story. Hi, I'm Isabel Hogan, and this is Borderline. Remember Brexit? Not that long ago, at least for those of us living here in the UK, it felt like the most momentous story of the decade. Right now, not so much. And yet we're less than two months away from a potential cliff edge. The UK has left the European Union that was concluded on January 31st after several delays. The withdrawal agreement includes some reassurance for Europeans settled in the UK, like myself, or vice versa British people in Europe. But let me tell you, that ball of dread is always there in the pit of your stomach. All that's left, and it's no small thing, is to agree a free trade deal to ensure that the regular flow of goods, people, data, financial transactions and more between the EU and the UK is not interrupted, not least on the land border across Ireland. The deadline is December 31st. Another thing for 2020. You're excused if you haven't kept up with Brexit these last few months. I know I haven't. So I called up Luke McGee, a journalist at CNN in London who's been covering Brexit for years now roaming the halls of power in Westminster and Brussels through false starts and missed deadlines. One thing that's always struck me having a foot on each side of the channel is how the story is a matter of diplomacy on the continent, very much of domestic politics here in Britain. And that's something Luke and I got to discuss. Thank you for, for coming on and for helping me understand what the heck is going on. There was up to a point where I was kind of trying to follow every day or every week and keep up and at some point I don't know when exactly but I just kind of gave up on understanding <laughs> Brexit. I think to some extent that's actually been a wise decision. If you look at what the differences are now between the two sides really they haven't changed that much in months. That might actually be a good place to start, it, just the fact that they haven't really moved that much. If you tuned out in you know, the beginning of spring, the end of winter, um, you probably haven't really missed that much. The fundamental issues between the two sides are still really the same three things. There's this dispute over the level playing field, which the EU has said from very early on at once if the UK is going to have access to uh, the EU's massive, massive single market. So level playing field on workers' rights, regulations, and crucially this state aid issue, which is uh, just turned into one of the nastiest, um, nastiest arguments in all of this. Fishing still a big issue. The UK wants to sell fish into the EU markets. The EU wants unrestricted fishing in return. It's one of the great mysteries of Brexit is the fact that the fishing industries of both the UK and France are these things that make up a tiny percentage, of, not, even a, not even a percent of GDP, have become these huge grounds of contention. And then the third issue is this idea of um, the governance of any deal, the involvement of the ECJ, which is uh, is just an absolute red line for so many Brexiteers. But, you know, when we have joint agreements, the idea that there won't be some involvement in any kind of arbitration, is, to me, just seems unrealistic. But, you know, those are still the three areas. Those are still the three things that need bridging if there's going to be at least a formal deal on trade. There might be room for compromise, but, you know, the things haven't really moved that much. Is it just like, I mean, just <laughs> COVID that has kind of distracted everyone? Or is it that people are just digging in and, and refusing to budge? 
I think there's a few things going on there. I think from the UK side, people certainly in government have kind of admitted that there was so much capacity going into COVID and the response. You know, you've got to remember that you know, it wasn't that long ago that we were being called the COVID capital of Europe and, uh, and you know, we had the most death. And it was a real big mess and even the Prime Minister himself was in intensive care. So it, it's, there was certainly not much bandwidth for Brexit. I mean, there, there have been improvements. You know, negotiations have moved along a bit and there's constructive talks, but those three issues haven't been bridged. And I personally can't see how they're bridged at anything other than a political level rather than between the negotiators. On the EU side, COVID has fundamentally changed their thinking. If you remember the 1.8 trillion COVID fund that was pulled off, it was this, this huge agreement between the 27 and it was a big success in their eyes. Relative to that, Brexit suddenly just seemed like a slightly smaller issue. It, it, it does put things into perspective, I think, for the Europeans. Yeah, and, and you wrote about that, actually, that Europe has kind of moved on for Brexit. Following media and following the conversation on, on both sides of the border, uh, I found it really striking that it's just become increasingly strident on, on the UK side and, and very much a, um, a big domestic political issue here in the UK, while it gets really, really quiet on the continent. The UK's version of the Brexit story was always in some respects a domestic political story. If you sort of compare the way when the UK was a member state, the way that the EU was talked about in this country compared to, say, Ireland or France or Germany, they knew what the EU was doing a lot more. We were never, as a, as a country, I think, into it. as, um, And I think this goes for even the most ardent Remainers. I don't think they were ever really as pro-European as Europeans are in other EU countries. So I think to some extent, it's always been a bit of a sort of domestic insular story. I think what's happened now is it's been such a long time since the vote and the stories to emerge about are still sort of negotiating with Brussels over these tiny things. If you voted to leave or even if you voted to remain and you just want it over, you know, it, it becomes so frustrating that there is political capital in then being strident on the UK side and blaming Brussels for their inability to move, which is kind of interesting because when you speak to actual negotiating people at government level, they really don't talk like that. They do talk about constructive talks with partners and wanting a deal and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, there's there's more bravado to the public than there is probably in, in the hallways. That cuts both ways, actually, I should just say. You speak to a lot of people in Brussels and it's not that they don't want a deal. It's that I think over here, we've not really factored in how... It's just not in, in, in their top 10 list of things to sort out, you know, and the political loss of conceding to the UK is just not seen as that big a deal. The EU's position has always been the EU's position. And I think as time's gone on, you know, that it, it's a matter of fact that the default position has become no deal and it's become harder to reach a deal. So they kind of can live with no deal and i think that's something that gets missed over here there's always been this uh, sort of strange idea over here that it will be the eu that blinks it, it's a funny thing but it, it does cut both ways you hit on something earlier that that i think is something that definitely on the eu side people at least citizens don't understand when i was living in france on the continent i always thought of of the uk as being part of europe Right, yeah. It was just a given. And then, and then I moved to the UK and I realized, no, they're not. In their heads, they're not. They talk about going on holiday to Europe when they mean the continent. 
Like they are not part of it. And that's something that really struck me because I never, I never saw England or, or the UK that way from the other side. In a weird way, it took Brexit for us to really engage with what the EU was. I'm not entirely convinced that everyone does now, but you know, I, I think in some weird way, it sort of took Brexit for us to realise what it was that we were a, were a member of. Um, so yeah, I, 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 it's been a very strange four years in that respect. You know, people never use the term single markets and customs union in, in political arguments before. You know, it's um, it's kind of ludicrous to, to think that that would be something that had come up before, and you know, that a campaigning issue would be on. Ah, oh, we're going to reform the single. You know, just it wouldn't happen, but it does happen in other European countries. So yeah, I think I think I think that's right, and it's interesting to hear you say that from France, obviously, other than Ireland being the country closest. To to the UK. Mm -hmm. Well, it does, it does go both ways in that I think seeing the UK deciding to leave has made a lot of Europeans think about, you know, would we want to leave? And, and the answer has been a pretty resounding no. Even places that had been thinking about it kind of backed off the idea looking at how it's happening for the UK. But I think it has made everyone think, why are we in this, actually? So it's, it's been interesting, I think. I don't know if you saw the European Social Survey from this year. It showed that, you know, pretty much across the block, everyone favoured EU membership, to some extent more integration. It found for countries like Norway and Switzerland, who are not in the block, but have a relationship with them, that, you know, although they didn't want to join, they were happy with the deal, basically, that they had at the moment. And interestingly, it was uh, it was the UK that um, was uh, 56.8 respondents indicated they were about to remain inside the box. Um, Too late. Well, I mean, although I, I always say take those things with a pinch of salt, because if the question is, would you vote to remain in the EU? That's a different question to after the last four years of political turmoil, would you now vote in a referendum to join the EU? You know, that, I think they're fundamentally quite different different questions. Yeah, and actually, that's interesting, because I think Brexit in 2016 didn't mean the same thing that Brexit does now, and it just feels like it's gone much more hardline and intransigent than it sounded to begin with. Yeah, I mean, I think you can trace that really back to when Theresa May won the Tory leadership contest in 2016, because she campaigned for Remain. She was a Remainer. And in the Tory leadership contest, really, everyone thought Boris was going to win. Then, as you know, Michael Gove basically betrayed him. And everyone then fell away. And Andrea Leadsom fell away, who was the only other Brexiteer. And it, it may won it without a vote, you know, well, without, without a final vote, at least. And what that kind of meant was you had someone who'd backed Remain. The party were kind of happy with, because she was always seen as quite a Brexity Remainer. But she sort of had to prove herself. And she was the first person to say no single market, no customs union. No Brexiteer had ever drawn those lines before. I slightly glibly always say it's like the born again people, uh, people who come to religion, you know, tend to be the most um, devout. And I, I've always thought she was a bit of a born again Brexiteer who suddenly decided she had to take this incredibly hardline approach. And, and what that did was tossed some red meat to the Brexiteers who went, oh, well, this sounds, this sounds very, you know, this sounds very hard. I think most of them at the time sort of thought that what would probably happen is there would just be some kind of, okay, we'll leave it, it'll look a bit like Norway. And, you know, we kind of won the, the victory and now we just get on with it. And then all of a sudden, these new political arguments were opened up over, you know, hard Brexit, soft Brexit. I mean, no one really knew what any of those things meant, but... You know, I think you can trace all of that really back to Theresa May sort of trying to 
really prove that she was a Brexiteer. Don't go anywhere. It's ugly, but I got to talk to you about money for a minute. I really love all the messages I'm getting from you about how much you love this or that episode or the fact that you're listening all the time. And I can see it in the numbers. It makes me really, really happy to know that someone's listening and that there is this community of defined global citizens out there who finds value in the work I'm doing. If you can, please consider supporting Borderline by becoming a member on Patreon. Members get every single episode earlier, extra content, extra access. I'm going to start doing some live streams just for this community where we can all chat together. So if you find value in that, or if you simply want to support the podcast, please join at borderlinepod.com or look for Borderline on Patreon. You can make any pledge. It's recommended five pounds or euros or dollars. Any amount will mean a lot. It will get you access to the community and it will help me keep doing this. Everything you're hearing was produced, recorded, edited by me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Now back to Luke. So I want to talk a bit about what's going on today or, or this week, this month. We saw the EU Commission launching legal proceedings against the UK, yeah. which I guess is never a good sign in a divorce when you get the lawyers involved. <laughs> Can you explain kind of what, what that's about and, and why is the EU you know, looking to sue the UK essentially? Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say that they are technically legal proceedings, but infringement procedures, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> they're pretty much, um, for those who follow EU politics, you know, it's pretty much the most EU slap on the wrist you can do. But at the core of it is this thing over the internal market bill. The internal market bill is something that the UK government simultaneously claims is simply there to protect the trade between the, the UK's internal market, the four nations of the United Kingdom. And it can do it by overriding any international law. Now, of course, in international law is a treaty the UK signed with the EU last year, which as part of its commitment to not having anything resembling a border or, uh, between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, it means that there'll be no customs checks. Now, this is all like incredibly technical stuff, but the, the short version of it is that it could, in theory, create a situation where customs checks are required between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. And that would breach an international treaty. It would breach the Good Friday Agreement. And as uh, Brandon Lewis said in the House of Commons, it would in a very limited and time-specific way, I think is the exact quote, breach international law. So <laughs> the EU, which is essentially just a series of rules and legal-based institutions and legal frameworks, said, well, hang on a minute. So it is a big row. It is a big deal. But the UK's position, and I think this is a sincerely held position, is it never wants to use it. Whether it's a bit of theatre that's supposed to kind of get the EU moving on certain stuff, you know, there are a lot of theories going around. And, and to be perfectly honest, no one really knows what's going on in the head of people at Downing Street. In some respects, I think the most damaging thing that's come out of it has been actually the condemnation from people most notably in America saying that if the UK breaches these international obligations, then it can absolutely wave goodbye to a trade deal with the US. I mean, we can, we can talk about the merits of trade deals with the US as much as we like, but certainly for people who campaign to lead, there was a big, big part of it was we'll be able to sign trade deals. And if the world's biggest economy says, well, not, not if you're doing this. But in terms of the political optics, that is a big loss. So yeah, it, it's a big deal that I sort of I sort of think there's a good chance it will never come to light, but it is a big deal. So you mentioned we're quite close to the finish line. 
What are the deadlines that we're working to right now? I know there's a EU summit next week. Um, what's, what's at stake there? Boris Johnson said he wants a deal kind of ready for then. There is going to be a ratification process. You know, when you do anything with the EU, these things need to be translated into a load of different languages. They need lawyers to go through them. They need to be ratified in different parliaments in different countries. So, so there is a bit of time. The difference, I suppose, is that with this one, the EU's been so kind of united on its position once it's decided on Brexit that it could happen very quickly. I mean, the real deadline is obviously December the 31st. If nothing's in place at that point, then we have a cliff edge. I'm frankly amazed we haven't had a walk away yet. I, <laughs> I thought that there would be by this point. They're still going. There's a lot at stake, obviously. We know that if there's no deal, it's going to be very, very difficult. It's going to be chaotic. The longer we leave it, the less time we have to prepare things like stockpiling. I think certainly on the economic side of it, lots of people, lots of businesses would breathe an enormous sigh of relief if out of October the 15th, they said, right, we've got a compromise here. It is. Even if that deal is very thin, which it will be, because the UK government does not want a particularly comprehensive trade deal with the EU. It's the only trade deal in history that I can think of that is working towards reducing trade with your trading partner. So um, it, it's quite an odd thing for the negotiating anyway. I think most people's ambition for what will actually come out of it is pretty slim, but I think they just want to know. Certainty is, is, is really the most important thing. And if there's something agreed there, that would be very good. Whether the politics of it allow for that is a completely different question. And really it has been politics that's driven this whole process. Mm -hmm. And uncertainty has been the thing that's been kind of plaguing us for years now for businesses, for residents, like myself, certainly. You touched on something, which is the idea that if any deal comes through, it would probably be a pretty thin deal. And that's something you and I discussed before, but the idea that, you know, at the last minute, people could sing, hurrah, we have a deal. And that's going to make us forget to look at the content of the deal, which may not be all that great. So initially in the um, political declaration, it said what we're going to seek is a is a tariff-free, quota-free, free trade deal. And that has changed from the UK's perspective to, you know, well, maybe we'll be happy with tariffs on 1% or 2% of goods. Now, that doesn't sound like much, but, you know, if you want to write tariff lines through 1% to 2% of all the goods that are traded between the UK and the EU, I mean, frankly, people on certainly on the EU's negotiating teams think there is not time to do that in, in the time we have left. I can't even comprehend how many hours of, of work would have to go into that. So it is going to be a thin deal. You know, whatever's agreed is going to be a very thin deal. There is going to be disruption. Michael Gove has, has accepted this. Um, it, it is not going to be seamless trade, even with a deal. And, you know, it probably will be OK, but it is going to be a reduction in trade with the biggest trading partner. That is just what the government is negotiating for, and that is its objective. So the final scenario, and, and you can tell me which of this you, you think is more likely, is no deal and hitting that, that cliff edge. Can you paint a picture of what that might look like? If all reports are to be believed, you know, it will be queues of lorries going up to the border, it will be food shortages, it will be medicine shortages, it will be the potential for goods to be increased. This has been painted out by economists and by people far cleverer than I have many, many times. You know, reality always has a way of slightly surprising you and things seldom happen overnight. But these are the 
real implications of what's happening. We, we've seen this week with um, the UK's uh, testing numbers, computer systems often don't work, you know. So, uh, and the scale of what we're trying to do uh, will be enormous. So it, the government's worst case scenarios, they might seem sort of dramatic, but at, at some point these are sort of hard numbers going into hard changes in law. And there are real life consequences to that. I would say that if no deal happens, it will be by accident rather than by design. I, I sincerely believe both sides want a deal. I think the danger is, and it goes both ways actually, but it, with with the best will in the world, I think it has been more on the UK side than the EU side. I think there's been a miscalculation over how important a deal has been for the EU for a long time now. I think as we talked about at the top, there's been a real kind of sense of this being an insular thing for the UK. You talk to officials or uh, diplomats in Brussels and they don't get us at all anymore. <laughs> they, they don't get what the UK wants. And it's the, the sense of frustration from the negotiation of the withdrawal agreement to the trade deal to accusations that the, the British government hasn't put down proposals, which they refute actually. And, and I, I know that they have, and there has been some politics played by the EU on this. Um, they're certainly not blameless, but blameless is actually a good place to possibly end this. The UK thinks there's merit in starting a blame game. The EU doesn't care. They have so little time for it because ultimately, if you're a citizen in Romania or something and the UK is having a weird spat about fish, with the, you, know, you don't care <laughs> about that. It's, um, it's completely remote and alien. So I think there's been a miscalculation. Um, on the UK side in, in many areas. I mean, as I said, I think the EU's not always behaved entirely brilliantly. And I think there has been a lot of politics played, especially in the last uh, round when it was uh, Jean-Claude Juncker and Donald Tusk, you know, that they, Tusk was famously a bit, a bit trolly on the internet sometimes. But that said, I think that it will be out of accident we end up with no deal. It, it's certainly not either side's intention. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, blaming the EU for being too hardline in a way, um, that's never going to work with EU citizens because they're like, well, we, we should be. And I think there's definitely a, a premium to appear tough to deter anyone else wanting to, to leave the bloc and, and to show their citizens that they've got their interest at heart. No one in Europe is interested in, in being nice to the UK right now. Right. And I think that it's a bit like sort of complaining that Man City have bought a you know hundred million pound striker and that he he scored a goal against uh, a championship team in a in a cup tie you know from the EU side they are the bigger partner well we're acting in our own interests and we have a bigger internal market that is frankly their view and to be honest it's a legitimate view you know Michel Barnier's job hasn't been to act in the interests of British citizens in terms of the blame stuff, I just find the framing of it very, very odd. If you blame Brussels for no deal while simultaneously saying the central claim is, you know, we're happy and more than prepared, as Boris Johnson said at the weekend, well, then if something goes wrong, the only thing that can be responsible for that is your lack of preparedness. Maybe it will play well with the British press. And certainly the, uh, the, the cause for Brexit. It has its allies in, uh, in in the British media and certainly among the British people. You know, they, they did vote to leave and Boris Johnson won a majority. Um, I'm just not sure how sensible all of this blame game stuff is. Mm-hmm. So it, it's been a bit of a groundhog day for you since 2016, <laughs> I guess. You've been covering this over and over and over again. Yeah. You to cover something else next year. You think we're done with this? I think there's going to be some problems with the implementation of any deal. I think 
basically we're not going to be able to just sort of turn our backs on it. I think we'll talk less about the process of Brexit. I think sort of ironically, I think having the EU on your doorstep, you know, and, and in the case of on the island of Ireland, literally sharing a board with you, in a weird way, uh, the UK out of the EU probably needs to know more about what's going on in the EU because it is this massive thing right next to you. So every decision the EU makes will in some way affect the UK, you know, because we can leave the EU, but we can't, we can't float towards America. You know, <laughs> one of the great ironies of EU membership is that you don't have to think about it that much. Um, whereas leaving, you have to know what's going on a bit more with it. I think we'll, certainly think about it in a different way i can't see that people who come to understand how all this stuff works would be short of work well i hope you get to do a, a different story every once in a while thank you so much for for helping me understand all this it's been really helpful oh well, i hope i have i mean as i say the groundhog day gets to me sometimes so i've appreciated the uh, the uh, invitation it's been, been uh, nice to talk yeah great to talk thank you so much thanks and there it is, like in a divorce, two parties never quite understanding the other, yet who'll still have to make room in their lives for them because in the middle are the confused kids. That's me and others like me. In the 48 hours since Luke and I talked, there were first hopeful leaks that a deal might be closer than we thought. Then minutes ago on Wednesday night, the UK's chief negotiator said that a deal was still some way off, though the door would never be closed to a deal even past Boris Johnson's self-imposed deadline on October 15. Meanwhile, Ireland's foreign minister said that before moving forward, the EU would need, quote, a very clear signal that the UK is, quote, willing to show some flexibility and realism. Thanks to Luke McGee for helping clarify things for us. As always, please share the pod with your friends, rate and review on Apple Podcasts, that really helps. I'm receiving super kind messages from people listening and loving Borderline, and that really means a lot and keeps me going. If you can, please consider supporting me on Patreon to help me make Borderline and pay the bills. Borderline is entirely produced, recorded, edited by me. No new members this week, so I'm going to shout out the brilliant people I already have because your support means so much. Anna, Monica, Jacqueline, Patty, Edward, Trafford, thank you so much. Look for Borderline on Patreon, or as always, find everything that you need, including transcripts for every episode at borderlinepod.com. This week on La VF, my French podcast, I started a series explaining the unusual logistics of the US presidential election and how that might impact results. So if you speak French, check that out, again, at borderlinepod.com. I'm your host, Isabelle Rogol. Borderline is a one-lane bridge production. Music by Diala. Talk to you next week. <laughs>